a hard text, isn't it? Um, it's not a very popular text in our, in our world. Um, just by way of reminder, we are going back into, um, we were studying the book of Psalms um, during our time where we couldn't meet, but before that we were in Colossians. So it might seem kind of a little clumsy to, to sort of jump back into if you haven't been around for a while, but that's the reasoning. We're, we were almost done with the book of Colossians, so I like to finish things that I start. Um, so um, I thought that it was a good time for us to, to jump back in to finish up the book of Colossians. And then it's a difficult passage, isn't it? Um, I don't know um, if anyone knows how to shut that off, um, but can someone shut that off for me? Because that is making an awful noise, and I don't know why. It usually doesn't make that noise. And um, I don't normally get distracted, but it's like a bee in my ear. <laughs> okay. So like I said, <clears throat> thank you. Um, like I said, before um, COVID happened, we were in um, Colossians because we really wanted to emphasize what is the vision of our church. Some of you might be a little bit new um, to our group and our gathering. Um, and last year, we spent a lot of time, myself, Mark, and, and Joe, who are the pastors of, um, in our church, uh, just really refining what it is our mission and values are. And what we came up with together <coughs> was basically this, our desire for our church <coughs> and for our neighbors is that they would know Jesus and find real life. Um, and we, we kind of sort of em like emphasize this phrase life because it's what we're all after. It's, I think, what people really are seeking when they buy a new fishing boat or when they get married. They're, they're desiring to live fully, um, to live happily. And we oftentimes miss it, and the boat doesn't work, and the career doesn't work. But Jesus Christ, who is our life, um, offers it to us. And everything that we've been looking for, we've just been looking in the wrong place. So the life that we desire, the real life to, to live fully is found in Christ. That's why we turn to the book of Colossians. <coughs> Excuse me. It's why we turn to the book of Colossians, because in Colossians, we have this incredible theme of Jesus Christ being the supreme Lord of all things, which means that we find our life when we find him. He is our creator. He is our master. So for us to be truly and fully alive, um, it, it only comes as a, as a product of knowing Jesus Christ fully. The, the theme of Colossians is in verse 28 in chapter 1, um, just as by way of reminder. <clears throat> he is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So here is a wonderful, almost like a life verse. Like the goal of the Christian life, my job as a pastor is just this, to see you fully formed, fully mature in Christ. It's to grow up in all things with respect to your relationship with Jesus. So that's why the church is here. That's my job in preaching the gospel to you and praying with you and seeing you formed to that end. Um, so we're going back now to Colossians, which we started, if you notice, we started a little bit after this last week because it was Father's Day, and I thought the end of Colossians was really pertinent and relevant to Father's Day. And actually, I think this, this passage is as well. So we're returning to our examination of Col Colossians, and we want to... We, we want to sort of look at and fall on a grenade that's in our culture, right? Colossians chapter 3, 
verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, is quite controversial in the values of the American mind. Um, it can be offensive uh, to some people um, when they hear it if they don't understand fully what it means. But when we rightly understand these words that Paul offers to us, we're going to see undeniably why not only are they good, um, but they cause our lives to thrive in Christ and with each other. So we're going to talk this morning about love and respect with God and with each other. Love and respect. Now, I'm not a good dancer. Is that surprising? But I'm not. I never have been. <coughs> My wife is. My wife's a great dancer. <coughs> Growing up, she was in theater, and she did all these different things. So she's got a beautiful voice, and she dances, and she acts, and um, she's, she's very, very talented. But I am not. <laughs> um, now, I know one thing, though, about couples dancing. If you ever see two, two uh, you know, man and a woman dancing together in a way that's just beautiful, for it to be excellent, for it to be beautiful, now this is my genius observation. You both need to know what you're doing, Right? It's just a function of dancing. Each partner needs to understand the dance you're dancing. If you're di one, is, one person's dancing the waltz and the other one's doing the chicken dance, it's not going to come out good. So you need to know what dance you're dancing. You need to know the various, the various steps. And you need to complement each other and not try to outshine each other. You need to follow the lead, right? And dancing, when you do this, well, can be a beautiful picture of art and skill and teamwork. And I love, what, I love seeing this, by the way. One of my favorite things to watch is um, figure skating in the Olympics. And what a beautiful demonstration of this is, uh, of this, um, when you see couples um, skating on ice to this beautifully choreographed um, 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 routine. And, and how, how wonderful it is to watch this. And friends, there's a dance that God wants to have with you and I. He's got a certain role in your life, and you have a certain role in his life. And when you complement it rather than undermine it, it is beautiful. <clears throat> he created us to know him and to love him. That relationship shines when there is a mutual exchange of love for God and respect for God and who he is. How many people know that you're not God? <clears throat> I know that. I'm not God. Okay. God is God. So you go home and you tell your, your wife and kids what you learned today. I'm not God. God is God. Okay? <laughs> very, very complicated, right? Um, so if God is God, I should let him be God. I should allow him that right in my life and not try to be him. When I do that, it's beautiful. When I don't do that, it's messy. Because <clears throat> I'm not him, Right? So when we submit our life to the Lord Jesus Christ, there isn't any area of our lives that's off limits to him if he indeed is Lord, God, and creator, and king. You see? We don't say you can have half of us but not this half. Then he wouldn't be God anymore. You follow me? In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, our entire lives, everything about us, is to be ruled from above, from heaven, where Christ reigns. That's what it says in chapter 3. So in all aspects of the Christian life, we surrender them to the Lordship of Christ. Our work, our relationships, our marriage, our parenting, all of it. 
comes to the surrender of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, when we do this, when, when we submit to the authority of God and his loving rule over us, and we follow it we, when we participate in that dance with God, um, it's a beautiful thing. Society is meant to mirror the relational harmony that is supposed to exist between us and God. What I mean by that is God, just like God has put order in our relationship with him, he's put order in our relationship with each other. And when we respect that rather than undermine it, society can be a beautiful dance. But when we don't, it can be an ugly mess. So here we have <clears throat> in Ephesians um, chapter 5, 21, this command that's similar to what we heard today in Colossians. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we hear this word, wives, submit to your husbands, and we immediately, there's something that we don't like about it. And I think sometimes it's because we don't really understand what it means. Um, and we'll get to that more later. But let me just try to level the playing field here before we get a little bit too upset about this. Because the Bible tells all of us to submit to one another. Right? So in other words, we all have this job. It's not just for wives. It's not just for workers or children or whoever it is that we might think. It's for all of us. So what does it mean? Well, Philippians chapter 2, I think, gives us a perfect definition of what it means for me to submit to you. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. And do not look out for your own interests, but for the interest of others. So submitting to you for me means that I am prioritizing your needs. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean I just do whatever you say, that you're my boss, that I just shut up, right? It means that I lovingly and selflessly serve you. Now, I, I know that I don't do that well all the time. And I think we all would admit that we're all in the same spot from time to time. We, don't, we all don't do this well. But before we make the word submit to be this kind of like ugly, repressive, you know, domineering type of concept, let's really fully understand what Scripture is saying. It's really talking about loving and selfless serving. Does that make sense? So the Christian doctrine of submission is for all. It's for man, it's for woman, it's for husband, it's for wife, it's for child, parent, boss, employee. There is none without exception. It means that we see our role, our function in a relationship. I exist in your life so that I can serve you and not be served by you. So in other words, my expectation is that you aren't here to just cater to my needs. I'm actually here to serve your needs. And when we both think like that, you see, this is what I mean by a dance. When two people are doing this for each other, you're both ser you both end up getting served. Does that make sense? You both end up getting loved like this. You don't have one abusing and using the other person because when you're both following this call to love, then it's a beautiful dance. So it means that you see your role in the relationship 
as one to serve and not to simply be served. It joyfully aims to respect the other person and to support that person as we use our various gifts and as they use theirs as well. We don't aim to resist them or replace them or overthrow them or undermine them. So let me give you an example. God, um, we're told to submit ourselves to the Lord, Jesus Christ. God is our Father. So in other words, for us to submit to God is to accept that he is Father and I am not. I'm not going to try to be my own father. He's my father. So rather than rejecting his fatherly affection, we embrace it as good, and we accept him. And we don't deny him this role. We treat him as our father. We don't undermine his duty and his job, his role, to serve us as our father. So we don't declare our independence. We don't demand to be outside of his fatherly affection. We subject ourselves to his fatherhood by loving him as his children. And God has called us, I think, to the same love and respect dance or relationship in society, in the church, in personal relationships, and in family. It promotes the harmony that God has intended in this world. Now, we mess it up, don't we? (laughs) Just put the news on or don't put the news on. So the dance of love and respect in our text begins, if you notice, with marriage. It goes on to talk about other sort of relationships of obligation and and how those work out. Um, I don't intend on expounding um, much of this section that relates uh, to the the parent-child or the slave-master. I'm really going to focus on the marriage relationship because I think that the instructions are similar, um, that there is a love and respect dance that exists in those settings too. But I do feel that it's important to address um, this mention of slavery um, because um, some people have asked why if, if the Bible, if Christianity is so uh, allegedly against slavery, why does Paul seem to sort of not call it out as a corrupt system? Why, why does he say slaves obey your masters and masters be good to your slaves? Why doesn't he say hey this whole thing is wrong and you should just end it? Right, so that's that's sometimes a critique of scripture. Like when people comb through the Bible, they don't. So some people claim that there is really no um, word against this institution, this gross institution of slavery. Now that's a packed question. Um, it's really not the intention of my sermon this morning. But I felt like because we read it, I can't just skip by it, and I need to address it. Um, I just want to make two points. Okay. Um, first, we have to consider the context that Paul is writing, okay? He's writing to a Greco-Roman world. He's not writing to an American world. He's not writing to a European world. He's writing to a, Greco- a Greco-Roman world. And what, why this is important is because there are various occasions for what they call slavery that we still do today. We just don't call it slavery, okay? Um, for example, when you break the law in our culture you lose your rights and freedoms. They called that slavery. We don't call that slavery. But we still practice that in our culture. We just call it something different. Does that make sense? Um, When you were in debt to someone at the time, you owed them a a great deal of money. You were forced to work for them in indentured servitude and slavery. Okay? Um, We handle debts differently in our culture. 
But there's nothing essentially wrong with having a way in which someone who is in debt to someone else is obligated to repay that debt. Does that make sense? So for Paul to just make a blanket statement that slavery is wrong and you shouldn't do it really isn't understanding the context of slavery at the time. There was a kind of slavery that we're more familiar with that is wrong, that he does, that the Bible does speak into over and over again as abominable. Okay? <clears throat> but Paul wouldn't have and shouldn't have disavowed all sorts of servitude, because we still have them to this day. And none of us, I think, would object. Um, second, um, when you look at Paul's instructions to Philemon, this is another letter in the New Testament. Um, Philemon was a slave owner. Um, he owned a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus um, apparently ran off and um, possibly even robbed him. And on the way, Paul, um, what most people believe, Paul ministered the gospel to Onesimus. He gets saved. He sends him back to Philemon, and he tells Philemon, don't treat him as a slave. Treat him as a brother in Christ. So right there, we also have this, indi um, this indication that the gospel undermines slavery, right? So we have to understand that in the context. When we're reading passages like Colossians, um, the Bible doesn't advocate the kind of slavery that we're thinking of um, when we think of slavery. It's talking about another setting. So we could rightly apply Paul's instructions um, of masters and slaves to, like, employees and employers, right? We're sort of, they're giving us money, and we're sort of indebted to them for that money. That's why we work for them, okay? So th I hope that all makes sense and answers some questions about why that, that if, if you've ever had that question about Scripture. Um, we're, but, but we are here to look more, more specifically about love and respect in the context of relationships. And in our text, wives are, are instructed to respect um, or submit to their husbands as the head of the house, and wives uh, and, and husbands are called to love their wives. So let's talk now about that love and respect harmony. And I want to begin by explaining first what submission is not. It is not an absolute surrender of the will in terms of human relationship. Okay? Christ is the wife's final authority and only Lord, not the husband, okay? All Christians first surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is our ultimate authority. Jesus instructed both men and women to pray this one thing. What did he say? Our Father, who art in heaven, thy will be done on earth as it is. Your will be done in my life. Not my dad's, not my boss's, not my husband's or my wife's. Thy will be done. He's king. He's Lord. Okay? So for the Christian, our first hope, friends, isn't landing a man or a woman, right? It's not finding ourselves in the arms of one of God's creations. It's finding ourselves in his arms to know his love first before any other. And love can be so tragic when it's worshipped, isn't it? When we think, this, I finally got what I need, and then it crashes and burns, and it wrecks our heart. When we see love in, in the eyes of another human being and we, we find ourselves, we say, in them, you complete me. 
right? Oh, it's romantic, and we should be romantic, friends. But there's only one person that completes us, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Your husband and your wife cannot, cannot, cannot complete you. They can't do it. And if you expect them to, it's going to wreck you. It's going to wreck, and it will wreck your relationship too. The Christian is primarily subject to God's love. So submission is not absolute surrender of the will to a person. Okay? Number two, it's not the function of the inferior. (laughs) Okay? The husband is not given a leadership or headship role because of some intrinsic inferiority in women, emotionally, spiritually, physically, or otherwise. Sometimes those are feminist, you know, those are, th- those are stereotypes about women that are wrong and should be called wrong. <clears throat> and here's how I know this. Christ, Jesus Christ, is equal with the Father in every way. How many people understand at least something that's called the doctrine of the Trinity? So we believe, Christians believe, that there is one God in three persons— God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are equal in power. They are equal in wisdom. They share everything that the other shares. They are all equally God. One isn't smarter than the other. One isn't stronger than the other. One isn't everywhere present, and the other, the other one is just on earth. Right? They're all everywhere present. They're all equally God. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's mysterious. I know it's mysterious. It's hard to understand that there's one God and three in person. But my point more is just to say that the son submits himself to the father's will. And he is not lesser than the father. You see? Um, we also have an indication of this in Genesis chapter 2. You guys know this verse. You know what it says. It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper. Helper. Now, oh, I love it. Every now and then I'm building something in my garage and my little girls come out and they want to help dad. Now, how many people know, I shouldn't say this, they're probably listening, they're great helpers, right? But (laughs) I don't really need, like, I have the knowledge already. Like, I don't, like, how do I put this together? I'm I'm not going to them because I lack some information that I need. They're not helping me in that sense. Maybe they're helping me with a task so something goes quicker, and in that sense, it's a good help. But th- there's not something, there's not some piece of information that I'm going to them because I don't have it. You see, that's how sometimes we, we hear the word helper. Like, it's not good, I will make him a helper. Oh, isn't that nice? Like, the, like a little puppy dog, right? That's not what a helper is. And a helper in Scripture is someone that fulfills a role that the other can't because they're the ones that lack something. Okay? Why do you think God over and over and over again in the Old Testament calls himself our helper? Certainly we're not smarter than God, right? Certainly he's not just handing us the hammer, right? No, God is our helper because we don't know what we're doing, right? So friends, when you read this in Genesis chapter 2, that I will make him a helper... God has made man a helper, let's just use our logic, because we don't know what we're doing. There is something about women that we don't understand. Can I get an amen? 
And there's something about men that they don't understand. But put them together, they're one. You see, we need what they have, and, and they need what we have. So it isn't this, like, just this person that, that helps you with the chores because you don't have time. They actually make your life more complete because they have something that you lack. Does that make sense? John chapter 5, verse 18 um, Jesus was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to realize that the head of Christ is God, the Father. Okay? So, a, a submitting role is not an inferior role. A helping role is not an inferior role. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. It's one that is provided to man because of what man lacks. So the call for wives to respect the leadership of her husband and help him is to provide something in the family that he could not provide on his own, as God does for us when he helps us. And finally, submission is not unconditional. So it's not absolute surrender, it's not a function of the inferior, and it's not unconditional. Peter reminds us in Acts that it is better to obey God than man. Okay, Wives are duty-bound not to follow the lead of a wicked man. They are instructed to disobey, if that's the case. Do you recall the command of uh, King Darius in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel? So in the Old Testament, there's this story about this man named Daniel. He's in servitude to the king of Persia, whose name is Darius. Um, and Darius is tricked into making this rule that only people can pray to him. Okay? Because Darius is not an Israelite, he's a Persian. So he has a, they have a multitude of gods. So he makes this law that all of the people, all of his subjects, have to pray to him and him alone. So you know what Daniel does? He opens his window wide open, gets on his knees, and prays to the God of Israel. He disobeys. He breaks the law. And he should have. He completely disregards a governmental rule that we're told in the New Testament not to break those rules unless they cause us to violate back to, back to point one, we are not an absolute surrender of our will to government or to workplace or to even family. We surrender our will to the Lord Jesus Christ. So submission is not unconditional <clears throat> at all. But what is it then? What is the word submit or respect, it might say in your, your Bible's translation? <clears throat> it has to do with the wife's calling to honor the responsibility given to her husband in the home, as, as the head of the home in Ephesians chapter 5. A wife that respects her husband's leadership is simply helping him and not undermining him in that role. If the wife provides something to the husband that he cannot provide, like we learned in Genesis 2, if she is vital to the life and health of the family unit, then we have to ask this question. How will the husband not undermine her? What does it mean, uh, or what is the husband's responsibility to, the, to his wife? <clears throat> so if she is vital to the life and health of the family unit, how will her gifts and duties likewise not be undermined by the husband because remember in Ephesians 5 all of us are told to submit one to another so how does 
the husbands sort of submit to or accept the, the, the unique gifting and role and purpose of his wife. How does he do this as head of the family unit? Well, very simply. The Bible says, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. It doesn't say, husbands, love yourself and use your wife to get what you want. It doesn't say that. Husbands, love your wives. So now what does this mean? This is what I want to talk about for a few more minutes. Husbands are commanded to love their wives. So this means very simply that a husband loving his wife is going to accept her part in the family, a part that he needs and that he cannot fulfill himself. So if he's doing this, love is going to prioritize the wife. And what does that mean? What does it mean that we prioritize our wives? Well, we said it in Philippians chapter 2. It means that we put our wife before ourselves. Husbands see their roles and presence in the family. We exist so that our wives can be promoted. Right? Their good, in other words, can be realized. So we don't make decisions selfishly or unanimously. We don't develop expectations that are self-serving. We see our roles as husbands as we exist so that my wife can grow and thrive and be who God made her to be. I'm putting her before myself. Okay? So our desire is to provide for the hopes and dreams of our wives. It's not simply a matter of feelings, of romance. That's not what love is. Love isn't a sexual attraction. Now, love includes those things, but those are more of the fruit of love. So it's more than that. Love prioritizes. Number two, if love prioritizes, love sacrifices. Okay? The model for love for the husband is Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. And what does it say? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He died for her. So we have to ask ourselves a question if we're husbands this morning. Are we dying for our wives? Are we, are we putting her good before our own? The command for husbands to love our wives is the command to die for her promotion and life. And to love our wives means that we see that they have needs and that they have gifts and that they have influence and power. And we're going to promote that and breathe life into it for them. So our desire isn't to seek our own glory or to fulfill our own dreams selfishly, but to love her in such a way as that we will support her in her dreams and in her hopes. So let me give you a real-life example. If your wife has been gifted to be a great lawyer, husband, how are you dying for her that she might realize this in her life? Are, are you always putting your career before hers? your desire to live in a certain place before hers? Have you recognized that God has gifted her in ways that are just as powerful and wonderful as you? You see, friends, because if love is what Christ said it was, right? Husbands, love your wives and give yourself up for her. You're, gonna, you're going to want to provide for her spiritually. You're going to want to provide for her physically. And you're also, you also you want to provide for her emotionally. 
and you want to uh, provide for her psychologically. What I mean by that is she's a person with gifts. She's good at certain things. Is she thriving in those areas, or are you undermining them? It's why Paul tells husbands not to become bitter towards your wife, embittered. Because if your attitude is selfish, you're going to become bitter. You're going to wind up seeing your spouse as just getting in the way of all of your hopes and dreams. Rather than seeing your role as husband to promote her. Okay? And friends, this means something very powerful. Our job as husbands is to promote our wives, not to use them for our own promotion. And likewise, the wife's job is to promote their husbands and not to use them for their own promotion. We both have the same job for each other, to promote each other. You see, that's the beautiful dance of marriage. Because when you live selflessly, when two people do this, you both thrive. A husband and a wife that love and respect each other will work together so that they each might be fully mature. All that they can be and were meant to be and created to be by God. So love is a partnership. Love prioritizes, love sacrifices, and love is a partnership. If husbands love their wives, they're going to respect them. You can't disrespect what you love. So you're going to see your wife and her role as a helper, not as an indication of your wife's limitations, but yours. So what's that going to mean? You're going you're gonna to need them as a partner, not a pincushion. God is our helper, not because he's inferior, but superior. So if we love God, we're going to, what did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll obey me. What does that mean? It means that we're going to heed the helper's wisdom. We're going to rely on him. We're going to not undermine it. We're going to seek it out. That's what Jesus said. If you love me, you'll do what I say. Isn't that an interesting twist on marriage? Husbands, love your wives, and if you love your wife, you'll do what they say. <laughs> I think there's something to that. Maybe not what you think it might mean. I think it means this. I understand this as a partnering. If my wife contributes something to the family that I lack, then I cannot be a dictator. I need her and she needs me. We need to work things out together. I need her to partner in decision-making, not just in practical daily tasks, but even ones that are more personal. Let me give you an example. Let's say you as a husband, you're a dentist, okay? And you're thinking, this, is, this career isn't for me anymore. I think I want to become an engineer. So the next day, you say, oh, uh, d darling wife, I've made a decision. I'm not going to be a dentist. I'm going to be an engineer. You're just telling her rather than seeing her as your helper. In other words, she's there to help you know things about yourself that you don't know about yourself. Do you see your spouse like this? To help you know things and work things out that, that God has given you each other for this purpose and this reason. Our wives and even our husbands, we're not there to just perform certain X, Y, and Z duties. When Paul says... You are not your own. It's, he says this in Corinthians. You are not your own, and your wife is not your own. You are one. And if you're one, you're partners. You need each other. So if you love me, you'll do what I say. Let me translate this. 
To love is to respect who the other person is and even to depend on that, to need it, to heed that wisdom and that personhood, to not bypass it or to assume it on yourself. Okay. Do you see now? I hope you get a, a more beautiful picture of what Scripture means when it says, Husbands, love your wives, and wives, respect your husbands. You see, there's this beautiful dance of mutual love and respect that should be occurring in the home that I think the Bible points us to. And I want to close with just making a couple of observations before we end, okay? This is a remarkably Christian. This would have been radical in the Greco-Roman world. They were writing 2,000 years ago in, in, in ancient Rome, right? For, for Paul to tell husbands that the rule of the home for the husband is love would not have been how the Greeks would have described the husband's role. To love as a supreme virtue is uniquely Christian. And to su suggest that it's the husband's chief duty would have been a radic radical concept. So we have to ask ourselves a question as Christians, because this isn't just for husbands. This is for all of us. Is love our chief virtue? Have we thought today about how we are loving others? You see, these two duties, love and respect, this is another thing I think that's important to note. You cannot view these as one-sided. What I mean by this is that to be subject to the leadership of someone who does not love you is nearly impossible. To submit or to, to follow the lead of the, 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 the leadership of a boss or um, a husband or a mom or a dad that does not have your best interest in mind is very difficult, isn't it? Equally difficult is it to love someone that disrespects you. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't. I'm just saying that it makes it very hard. It's not beautiful unless both are participating in, a, in that love and respect dance. See? What husband would not sacrificially love a wife that respected him to the hills? And what wife would not respect a husband that loved like what we describe? It's almost impossible not to respond in kind. When you start loving, it seems that respect just follows. And when you start respecting, it seems that love follows. Now, I know that there are exceptions and that life is messy, and I get that. But there is this principle, this rule, that when, we're, when we do our jobs, right, when we love, it tends towards the, the mutual happiness of a relationship. So love and respect can't be viewed as one-sided. They both need to exist for there to be harmony. And that's why the third point I want to make um, as we close, this is medicine for social dysfunction. Not just in the family, but in politics, in government, in neighborhoods. Imagine if bosses, people in power, politicians, didn't use their position to promote themselves, but to serve those that, they're, that, that, that are their responsibility, that they're in charge of. Imagine if we responded in kind, this kind of respect, to our bosses and political figures and different people like this, that we actually honored them. How might our nation heal if we saw this? You see, love covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it? 
And you know what? I think I've got to close with this because redemption makes all this possible because it's the chief sort of example of what this means. Jesus is the better husband, the greater boss, the perfect dad. And he loves us. And he died for us. He did everything for us. He moved heaven and earth for us so that we could have a better inheritance and we could have real life. Friends, will we respond in kind? Will we follow him anywhere he goes because of his great love for us? Anywhere he leads us, we'll follow because of this great, unending, and undying love. I hope this morning that we will subject ourselves to the loving advance of our Creator King and likewise love those around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. and Thank you, Lord, for this time where we get to, to gather together. God, this um, for us in, in our modern minds is a, is a hard word to hear, but I hope that this morning after hearing it explained and articulated what it really means, Lord, that we would thrive in our marriages, in our homes, in our workplace. Give us the power that we need to demonstrate what you've given to us in Christ. If there's anyone here this morning that did not know that Jesus Christ, who's God in the flesh, came to die for you so that he could rescue you and bring you to himself, I hope that this morning that you will give your life to Christ, cry out to him, God, I'm a sinner, save me. I know that I can't be good enough, I can't go to church enough, I can't pray enough. You need to save me or I won't be saved. For by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Oh God, this morning I pray, Lord, if there's anyone that doesn't know you, that they would be saved, that they would repent of their sin and turn to you and follow you to the ends of the earth. And God, bless the rest of us as we aim to subject ourselves to the kind and loving leadership of our good king. I pray that we would do the same for each other and that we would serve each other selflessly. God, we love you and ask that you bless us now the rest of our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.